Hi, welcome to church today. The message you're about to listen to came from a recent gathering at our church. Be encouraged as you enjoy this message. Yeah, Father, we just give you thanks this morning, Lord. We thank you that you are good. We thank you, Lord, that you bless us and you continue to bless us, Lord. And we, we just pray that as you, as we, um, as I speak this morning, Lord, that you would um, anoint my words, Lord, that they would be your words. Lord, that we would together be able to turn our hearts towards you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Deborah and Jen, for the worship. You know, I mean, last week, last week, Deborah said to me, you know, I'm leading worship next week. You're preaching. Have you got anything particular that you'd like me to, you know, focus on? That kind of thing, and I just said no. Just lead as you will, and um, I knew I knew that she would be spot on because you know I knew I knew that it would be spot on, and it was so spot on today. One thing I desire only this I see just to dwell, you know, in His presence here forever. You know, this will be my posture, laying at His feet, laying at your feet, to dwell here forever. You know, and so. Um, John 15, 4 and 5, Jesus says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Just as no branch can bear fruit by itself without remaining in the vine, neither can you bear fruit, producing evidence of your faith, unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, that is cut off from vital union with me, you can do nothing. These are Jesus' famous words in the upper room. He's sharing his last supper with his disciples. And here he's addressing each of his disciples individually, sharing with them his most vital teaching. You know, each of you are like a branch. That very evening that he's to be arrested, you know, he could have, he could have done, taught about many, many things, but Jesus teaches about remaining in him, and he teaches about love for one another. He wants each of them to realize that their branches are placed in the vine and to remain as faithful branches. And in the KJV, in the King James Version, the word remain is actually abide, abide in me, you know. And, um, you know, to stay, to just dwell there like we were this morning, to look at Jesus, to linger longer, you know. We've had a, quite a lot of talk in the last few weeks about seeing more miracles, um, you know, Jesus pouring out his his healing power on people. And um, there's only one way, you know, we can overcomplicate it, but really it's just to abide. Yeah. It's just to abide in him. So that as we go out from here, our hearts still abide. So as we go into our week, our hearts still abide. And we remain sat on him in our hearts. Yeah. You know, his glory, his majesty, his greatness, his kindness, his love and his power. And when we go out, we bring aspects of who he is, co-laboring with him into every situation. You know, Jesus' love for his disciples, how deep is Jesus' love for his disciples? How deep is his love for those who follow him? It's just crazy deep, you know. It's so deep, you know, think about it. Let's just look at Judas, you know, the disciple who betrays Jesus. 
You know, earlier on that evening, Jesus extends his love to Judas, and we're going to see how. Even though he knew Judas's heart, you know, at this point when he says remain, he, you know, Judas has left the gathering and gone out, you know, into the night. But before this point, it's important to think about Jesus' love for Judas. You know, he early, earlier on in the Gospels, he instructs his disciples to pray for their enemies. So let's think of the Lord's love for Judas, you know. So this is um, John 13, 1 to 4. Now, before the Passover feast, Judas, Jesus knew that his hour had come, and it was time for him to leave this world and return to the Father. Having greatly loved his own who were in the world, he loved them and continuously loves them with his perfect love to the end, eternally. It was during supper when the devil had already put the thought of betraying Jesus into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, that Jesus, knowing that the Father had put everything into his hands and that he had come from God and was now returning to God, got up from supper, took off his outer robe, and taking a servant's tail, he tied it round his waist. So Judas was present, it says here, as Jesus did this. Jesus gets up, he takes off his robe, he takes the servant's tail, he puts it round his waist, ties it round his waist, and then he bends down and he goes round the group of his disciples and he washes his disciples' feet. And as he, think of it, as he washes Judas's feet, he knows what's coming. He knows what's going to happen. Imagine Jesus' gaze as he looks up from the feet of Judas into the eyes of Judas, knowing that he's about to betray him. Jesus shows Judas the full extent of his love. Not only that, when we realize the layout of the upper room, we see his love for Jesus, Judas made even more manifest. The Last Supper didn't look like the Da Vinci painting, you know, with all the disciples on a long kind of table with Jesus in the middle. It didn't look like that. You know, in, in um, that culture, they, um, they would have lay down, they would have reclined. They, you recline on your left side, and as you recline on your left side, your feet, your face, your kind of, you, you face the table, and um, there's three, there's a table in the middle, and there's three, um, there's three different kind of couches that people are on, one each side and one in the middle, and round the table. And it's called a triclinium. And so we know that Je Jesus was the host of this, so he would have sat, he would have not sat, but actually reclined in the middle. Um, and the disciples would have been lying on their left sides, using their right, right hand to eat. Um, when we realize this information and we think about the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, it's easy to see who's reclining next to him. Because John is immediately to the right of Jesus. Um, hence, in 13, verse 23, it says, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was leaning against Jesus' chest. This means that John, it's probably a bit of a cramped thing as well, because in Roman triclinians, they would have had about enough um, room on a couch for three people, but obviously there's 12 disciples, right? So it's kind of squished, um, I reckon. But next to Jesus, is, um, is um, on, on the right-hand side, is John. So that's why, how he can say, who is it, Lord, when, when Jesus, you know, Peter calls across to him from the other side, you know, ask Jesus who it is who's going to betray him, and he says, who is it, Lord? And he leans against his chest because he's right next to him. He pro it says in verse 25, he asked him privately, who is it, Lord? 
And Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I give this piece of bread after I've dipped it. So when he dipped the piece of bread into the dish, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. So now it appears that the interaction that Jude, from this interaction, that Judas is actually the other side of Jesus on his left. And that's important because that's the place where the guest of honor reclines. So Judas has got the place of the guest of honor next to him, to his left. Why would it be where the guest of honor reclines? Because it's a place of trust, because you, you haven't, you've got your back to them, right? So you're lying on your left side. So he's lying on his left side with Judas right behind him. Just, uh, that's a, a crazy thing, you know? The guy who's about to betray him, Jesus is saying, you know, I, you, you, know you, you can be in the guest of honor's place. You can be there. And uh, it's, it's a crazy thing. I, when I learned that, I was just like, how? how? How does that happen? You know, that Jesus would do that. But then Jesus dips the bread in, in the bowl and he turns round with his head on Judas's breast and he gives the bread to Judas. And Judas, in the, according to the culture, this was a sign of reconciliation, this giving of the bread. Okay, so he's giving him a a last moment olive branch, and it's an act of affe affection, friendship, and reconciliation. He's doing this to Judas. So he, he does it to Judas, and Judas at that point should dip it back in the dish and give it back to him. But instead, it says, and, but, but Satan entered him, and he went out immediately into the night. That's, a, that's just a, an amazing interaction from our Lord that he would do this to Judas, you know. So that's what happens. But that's, what's, that's what happens. So now Jesus is left with his 11 disciples and he teaches them. And this teaching in the upper room is obviously, I think it's the most glorious teaching anywhere in the whole world ever. Um, where, I mean, I, I love the Sermon on the Mount, don't get me wrong. But the Sermon on the Mount, it kind of gives us a structure of, of the possibilities for the whole of human society and relationships in society. Whereas this upper room discourse, Jesus gives instruction just to his disciples regarding, his, regarding true intimacy, love, and friendship with God and each other. This is like the key moments with his disciples. I mean, Jesus could have done a deliverance lecture at this point, or he could have told them how to heal blind people, but he didn't. He actually talks to them about love, intimacy, and friendship with God and remaining in him. Love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. He says it four times, you know. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. It's a crazy thing, you know. Then teach, Jesus teaches him about remaining in him, teaches them about remaining in him in his teaching. And he teaches them that each individual branch is coming out of the vine from him. Imagine it, through these disciples, these 11 disciples, the whole world, including us, will eventually hear the gospel as they tell others who tell others who tell others, like a huge vine that spreads out. If you've ever seen a vine which spreads out, there's a vineyard down in Horsham. Um, and um, there's a little area of that vineyard where there's some vines that they've just left. And those vines have spread out and out and out and out. You know, the branches are really, really long. And that's kind of like, you know, the church in some ways. It's just Jesus' message spread out across the world. Amazing. But when we think of the vine passage, quite often I think, being, being kind of 
Western culture, we quite often think of things in an individualistic way. You know, we think of each ourselves perhaps as a branch remaining, you know, the importance of each of us as a branch remaining ourselves. But the point is that we're all part of the vine. We're all needing to remain on him, in him, and we're each together. And so the vine speaks of intimacy remaining, but it must be always remaining together, yeah. remaining together. Yeah. It's God's purpose that we have intimacy with him together. This is what makes Mary's act of devotion to Jesus in John 12 all the more remarkable. She's on her own. She's a woman in a room full of men, and she comes in and she, you know, anoints his feet. What a crazy act this is, you know. An individual, a woman, she's got her hair down, which is kind of culturally inappropriate at the time, right? And she, she's so intimate as this individual, and she's so wrapped up in worshipping Jesus that, you know, every, people are criticising her, and she just carries on. So let's look at it for a moment in, from John 12, 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom he had raised from the dead. So they gave a supper for him there. Martha was serving, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very expensive perfume of pure nard, and she, brought, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was going to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Now he said this, not because he cared about the poor, for he had never cared about them, but because he was a thief. And since he had the money box serving as the treasurer for the 12 disciples, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep, so that she may keep the rest of it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. We just love Mary, don't we? I mean, you know, who doesn't love Mary? Her devotion, breaking the alabaster jar, Mary carrying on regardless, lost in worship with, Je with her Jesus. I think she teaches us so much, right? And it's, it's kind of, she's, you know, amazing. And it's amazing because... You know, Jesus says that this, this woman's worship is so extravagant, it's going to be known throughout all time. And we just know Mary because Jesus said we would know Mary. She teaches us so much. She, she previously sat at his feet. We see that in Luke 11. And Martha's there protesting. Oh, Lord, you know, Mary's just doing all this, you know, sitting at your feet thing while I have to do everything. The issue with, with Martha at that point, I think, is that she's out of Jesus's, you know, she's out of earshot of what Jesus is saying. Because I reckon had she been in earshot, she would have probably stopped preparing her food, right? Mm. Jesus says to Martha, you know, that Mary has chosen the one thing that is needed. The one thing that's needed. So let's go to forward to John 12. And instead of sitting at his feet, he, he, she's since seen her brother risen from the dead, you know, called out of the tomb after four days of being dead. She's seen the amazing power of Jesus and her worship of him is now super extravagant because the more we realize the power and the love of Jesus, the more extravagant our devotion to him and our worship for him becomes. To be like Mary, you know, extravagant in our worship, you know. 
It's interesting to think about Judas again in this passage, right? Because Judas protests, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's really interesting to me that in Mary's moment of complete devotion, there's a voice which seeks to tear down that moment. Isn't that interesting? How many times have you experienced that voice? When you're just about to draw close to Jesus, there's that voice that says, you know, perhaps before you do this, you ought to do that. Perhaps this is the thing over there that you need to attend to. Or maybe you don't really have time for this now. Maybe you should come back to this later, you know. And that's only the internal voices, you know. There may be external ones sometimes when we draw close to Jesus. let's think about judas's words for a moment you know judas is the voice of reason you know why was this money not sold for 300 denarii and the money you know perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor you know this is worth a year's wages and this woman squanders it like this It's, it's so interesting how our expressions of devotion highlight where other people's hearts are at, you know? I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, like, Judas is is the first example I can think of of of, um, virtue signaling, you know? (laughs) He is the virtue signaler, you know? Virtue signaling is when, basically, um, it's like a counterfeit. It's when people adopt a cause to appear good without their heart being actually involved with it. And that's a problem um, for, for, for anybody who engages in it. But it's a problem for us when we listen to it as well. You know, Ju- Judas's words sound good to the, to the person who's reasonable, you know, but they cover up the fact that it says that Judas was a thief. Judas speaks loudly to distract from the truth of the matter. He's no real concern for the poor because the voice of reason doesn't speak the language of the heart. The voice of reason does not speak the language of the heart. I don't think that Mary heard Judas's protestations. I, don't, I really just don't think she even took any notice of them at all, because her devotion in this story is so powerful, you know, that as, Je- as Jesus said, himself said, we, we know about it now. You know, deep down, I, I think each one of us here desires to be like Mary and to pour, the oil, pour this oil of our worship out. And I think this is where the Lord is taking our church to, this place of unbridled devotion to him. And it's a simplicity to it, the simplicity of pure devotion. Just, it's simple, you know. Jesus is who he says he is. He does what he says he will, you know. He's totally faithful, totally faithful. You know. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11:3, but I'm afraid that even as the serpent beguiled Eve by his cunning, your minds may be corrupted and led away from the simplicity of your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We have to be so careful because the enemy seeks to just lead us away from the simplicity of our devotion to Christ, just to kind of make things just that little bit more complicated, you know, to, just to make things, oh, yeah, but you need to do this and that. You need to do this worship thing, and you need to go and do this uh, as well, you know. Um, I think it's it's important for us to realize the way the enemy seeks to draw us and corrupt us and distract us from pure devotion. You know, he, he tries to do it through Judas to Mary. He works in the mind, Paul says, you know. 
your minds may be corrupted, trying to tempt us with his cunning. He, Paul talks about the serpent beguiling Eve. So how does he beguile Eve? We know the story. You know, we know that Satan can't create. He can't create anything. All he can do is distort. So he twists the words of God. He, he always seeks to twist the words, you know. That's why he's the prince of the power of the air and the prince of the power of the airwaves as well, you know. It's like, read the news, read the news, right? <laughs> Listen to the news. It's like, it's crazy, you know. But think about it, you know. We have the new covenant. Satanists have covens, yeah? His covens are a distortion of the covenant. Where the real covenant leads to life, Satan's covens lead to death. You know, that's how, it, that's how it works. So to Eve, Satan says, did God really say? He casts doubts on the words of God and just adds a little bit to them. You know, did God really say? If anyone says, did God really say to you about something, just rebuke them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> just do it straight away, you know? Don't, don't engage. Eve shouldn't have engaged at this point. She should have said, shut up, <laughs> go away. I'm not interested. The best way is to just cut it off, you know? Cut, cut off the, the head of the snake, you know? Yeah. Don't engage. Instead, continue to do what the Lord has said. Be obedient to the Lord. Mm. We've all been there, though, right? Being obedient to the Lord. You know, the nanosecond after we've heard his voice, just as we're about to act, did God really say do that? Did God really say go and pray for that guy on the street? Did God really say that, you know? Um, that's why immediate obedience is so important. You know, it's that in-the-moment obedience. You know, acting in the moment. One of the enemy's simplest tricks is to just add delay. Just a little bit of delay, you know. And it works on all sorts of level, you know, levels. I've worked here for like 20 years. I've seen loads of kids here who, who have Christian faith themselves. And a lot of the time what you realise is that young people of like 14, 15, 16, they have faith but they think that one day God will be able to use them. One day God will be able to use them. Some point in the future God will be able to use them, you know. But we live in the present. We live in today, you know. Today if you hear your vo his voice, harden not your hearts. That's what the, the Lord says. And in John chapter 4, you know, he, he says to them in, in that bit, he says... Um, you know, don't they say four months until the harvest? Yeah. Look, the fields are white for the harvest now, you know. So we, we have this thing of delay. We need to be careful not to delay. Use the moment each day, the moment that's in front of you. Don't think you're going to do something later when you can do it right now. And we see this in the Bible in lots of places. Um, you know, the disciples leaving their nets and following Jesus. They don't delay, they, they just do it. You know, we see it when, yeah. when God calls Abraham and Abraham leaves immediately, you know, um, having had a long time in Haran, <laughs> you know. But one of my favorite instances of it is actually in Genesis 24. And let me, let me tell you about Genesis 24 a little bit. It's, that, it's the longest chapter of Genesis. And do you remember, it's where, where Abraham's servant goes to get a, a um, wife for Isaac. Okay, and, they, and theologians think that the reason this is the longest chapter in Genesis is because actually it's, it's allegorical for the way the Father sends the Holy Spirit to woo the bride of Christ. And it's a, that's an, read Genesis 24 and you'll be amazed when you actually read it carefully and you start looking at that in relation to the way God woo, woos people into his kingdom. 
the servant of Abraham meets Rebecca by the well, and you know she waters his camels, and then goes back to the. They go back and meet Laban, the brother, <coughs> and then it's late, so they stay the night. But the next morning, the first thing the servant kind of says is like, "Let me take Rebecca now. Let us let me take Rebecca now, and we we'll go back to Abraham now." To which Rebecca's mother and brother say, let her stay with us at least 10 days, then she may go. But the servant insists that Rebecca has to go with him that very day. Why? Because, yeah, she might change her mind, you know, or knowing Laban, as we do later on, yeah, <laughs> there might be a whole bunch of conditions. Maybe Rebecca would be there for seven more years, you know. Think about it, right? Indecision creeps in. You know, then other conditions creep in, and then the moment has been lost. And this is interesting in this passage, because if this is allegorical of, of the way that God calls people by his Holy Spirit, then when you have that moment to bring people to Christ, do it at that moment when the conviction is there. You know, don't pass it because you're thinking, oh, what do I say? How do I say it? Because I've, I've done that before now, and it's a bad idea to pass it. Or when the Holy Spirit says to you, come away with me, my darling, my bride, are we going to delay? Yeah. Or when he says, do this or do that, who are we to delay? Mm. You know, one of the most chilling places in the Bible for me is Luke 6, 46. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do as I say? Wow. <laughs> Gosh. The second part of the trap in which serp the serpent corrupts Eve is this appeal to self which is really interesting because I'm not sure that prior to the conversation Eve had ever even considered herself. She's in relationship with God and Adam. Uh, I don't think she's self-conscious. She's naked. She feels no shame. But the enemy brings self-consciousness in through casting doubt on God's nature. That can happen when you're praying for somebody. Do you know that? All of a sudden in your mind you have that kind of thing drop in and you're like, what am I doing this for? Or, you know, that kind of voice. You have to go, nope. That's not coming to me. Mm -hmm. But he brings self-consciousness in through casting doubt on God's nature, highlighting the one thing that, that they've been told not to do and making it seem unreasonable of God. So he, he appeals to pride in her, suggesting there could be another way than God's way. You know, maybe you know better than God. And the human struggle to obey has been there ever since, you know. Maybe we know better than God. So Eve fell. But let's think about this. Where was Adam at the point where Eve fell? Right next to her? Yeah. What did Adam say? Nada? Nothing? <laughs> Zip? He said nothing. He just went, hmm, okay. I'll have some of that. Why didn't we hear him say to the serpent, get lost? Get out of here. We hear nothing from his mouth in the narrative. Nothing at all. During the whole temptation, you know, Adam stays silent. And this has so often been the case, you know, because the enemy works to isolate us from those around us in order to bring us down. As a whole, we're difficult to deal with. But if he can divide and isolate, he can slice and dice us, yeah? His job's made so much easier, yeah? I went to Witchfest yesterday in Croydon, yeah? You know, there was this Witchfest going on, biggest festival of witches in the UK. Um, I went... Um, with a mate of mine, and we went down there, we prayed and, and um, worshipped a bit, and then we went and talked to people outside Fairfield Halls. And there was a bunch of Christians making the most ungodly racket. I mean, honestly, they couldn't sing in tune, but they could shout about hell quite a lot. It was really not helpful. Mm -hmm. 
100 people shouting about hell to a bunch of people who probably know more about hell than they do, you know. <laughs> wasn't really great. But anyway, we, ca we carried on. We, and, and so they kind of cleared people off the front. They wouldn't allow the people who were making the bedlam to kind of come near the hall because they were actually quite threatening to people. So instead, they cleared them to the other side of the road, where you know, and then so we had to sneak in and be just under the canopy, you know, at the entrance. And so we're standing out out there under the entrance, and Andrew led a girl to Christ. How cool is that at the witch fest? That was cool. And then this guy comes out, and I'm with this other Christian, this fellow called Kevin. I'd never met him before. He was just doing the same sort of thing as we were, and um, this guy comes out, and Kevin recognises him as one of the main speakers. Okay, so this guy is out there, one of the main speakers of the festival, okay? And um, he goes to us, oh, man, this music is so out of tune from the people across the road. He's like, it's, and they don't even know the words. <laughs> and I'm like, hmm, come again? And we get to chatting to this fella. Guess what? He was a pastor. For 20, for 20 years previously, he'd been a pastor for years. He said, oh, yeah, I saw God heal people. I don't believe in God now, but I saw healings. I saw miracles, you know. And he, he was a pastor at a, at a kind of um, charismatic, charismatic uh, movement that we, all, we would all have heard of. I'm not going to say it now, but how crazy is that? And there he is, one of the main speakers at Witchfest, you know. But how did this man... He probably didn't meet Jesus, but but do you know what? He was he was he was even he was even a pastor, and he didn't. Uh, well, no, I, uh, Tina, I don't I don't doubt he didn't know Jesus, and when I talked to him, he definitely didn't know Jesus. Um, but how did he become a how did he become a witch? I would I would warrant that he was isolated. He drifted from the truth, you know, little by little, drifting. Oh, what, what was it he said? He says, um, you know, there's God, but then why isn't there goddess? So we started calling Holy Spirit, you know, her, she, da-da-da. And then it's like, and then da-da-da, and then da-da-da. And, and nobody had the wit to bring him back and say, mate, get a grip, you know. I know, right, but that was a, it was a crazy thing, you know. We fall for the tactics of the enemy far too easily. You know, he seeks to divide, isolate, and then destroy. And this guy, I think, was pretty far down the track, sadly. You know. It's crazy. You've got to stand on God's word. You've got to stand on God's word. But isolating is a, hu is a known tactic. You know, when an enemy has, is faced with huge opposition, the best way they can do it is to think about isolating and dividing. Think about what Hitler did in Germany in the 20s and 30s. He consolidates power by getting into power and then isolating people, dividing. It's called salami tactics or, or the salami slicing strategy. My friend Mark wrote to me about it a while ago. He said, he said this. This is nicely written because it's not written by me. Um, salami tactics, also known as the salami slicing strategy, is a divide and conquer process of threats and alliances used to overcome opposition. With it, an aggressor can influence and eventually dominate a landscape, typically political, piece by piece. In this fashion, the opposition is eliminated slice by slice until one realizes too late that it's gone in, in its entirety. 
In some cases, it includes the creation of several factions within the opposing political party and then dismantling that party from the inside without causing the sliced slice, the slice sides to protest. Salami tactics are most likely to succeed when the perpetrators keep their, long -term, their true long-term motives hidden and maintain a posture of cooperativeness and helpfulness while engaged in the intended gradual subversion. Wow. The enemy seeks to do this within the church, folks. Yes. Divide it, bring denominations, denominations, bring them into disunity with one another. Then once they're in their little small chunks, division in the church, do, 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 take a bit, of, a bit of doctrine here, a bit of doctrine there, which is not quite right doctrine. Take a small slice off here, take a small slice off there, then another, then another. Then we look around and we, we look around two weeks ago and outside the church where I got married, there's, there's Muslims on the street doing Jummah prayers. Where's the church? Where's the church? I mean, come on. <laughs> Where are the church? But God is calling us, folks, into something different at CCF. Let's think about Mary's devotion again. Imagine if instead of going along with Judas, as it hints in Matthew and Mark's version of the story, a bit different to John's, and it hints that not only was Judas saying it, but the others were saying it too. This, why? Yeah, 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 listen to what Judas says, the voice of reason, da-da-da. Imagine what would have happened in that scenario if instead of like, protesting about Mary, the disciples had gone along with Mary in their wholehearted devotion of Jesus. You know, despite Judas' protestations, the scent of Mary's perfume does fill the whole house, right? But imagine the unity which would have been created had they all shown the same love for Jesus as Mary did. And I think this is what Psalm 133 speaks about. You know, behold... Is it 133? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Behold, i.e. look, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Like the precious oil poured on the head and coming down on the beard, even the beard of Aaron coming down upon the edge of his priestly robes, consecrating the whole body. David talks elsewhere in the Psalms a lot about dwelling in the presence in the house of God. But here we have the picture of the high priest of God, so anointed with oil, the oil of the Holy Spirit, so anointed that it kind of completely covers him, it envelops him, it runs down his whole being, his whole body, and presumably across the floor, you know. And then from there, the psalmist jumps to, it is like the dew of Mount Hermon coming down on the hills of Zion. So the unity of brothers dwelling in the presence of God commands a blessing of life forevermore. The blessing extends from the individual, the priest over the whole nation, so the church in a sense, to the whole of creation, the abundance of the springs of Mount Hermon that watered in, and indeed still do water Israel. You know, I remember Rod doing something about that during lockdown, the springs of Mount Hermon. Yeah, there's, there's like torrents that come down from that mountain like literally torrents. And, it's, and, and so um, when, when we think about the unity of brothers devoted to Jesus in oneness, this is the plan of Jesus to bring his power to the earth to change the whole earth. Yes. Yes. This is what he's looking for at CCF, yeah. oneness, yeah. oneness. And what is oneness? I was thinking about this. Oneness is an alignment of unity and availability of a body of believers. You know, unity and availability. And it's November now, and I'm excited because that means in January, which isn't so far away, we have our church fast approaching. Yeah. 
And let's think about this a moment. When is the time that we see God move particularly powerfully in CCF? The church fast. When we get together and when we go each evening go online, we pray together. That's when we see God move most. It's funny, that. Mm. Mm. It's interesting, though, because the enemy is very cunning when it comes to this thing of placing our mind, placing, thinking about commitment to something. Because on one hand, his trap is to make commitment become control or coercion, which and then, then you lead back into the witchcraft thing, you know, control, control. The guy I was with yesterday, um, Andrew, who's African, um, British African guy, he was, he was talking about a church he went to where the pastor was just control, control, you know, all of that stuff. And, he, and then he was talking about a church where the English pastor was doing the control, control thing as well. So... <laughs> So it's an easy thing to fall into, this control thing, this coercion thing. That's not the way of the Lord. So in our minds, we then go, we don't want control, so we're going to go for individual choice. I'll choose whether I do this, and I'll choose whether I do that. And so instead of being about control, we just become about being casual. Oh, I can just be casual. I don't feel like going to church today. I don't feel like doing this today, you know. Mm? That's, a, that's a grace, you know, the overuse mm. of grace. Yeah, exactly, the overuse of grace, the overuse of grace. Oh, I just might skip this. But the enemy uses these two traps to stop us getting into full agreement with each other because we go, oh, we don't want to be controlled. And then we go, oh, I'm just going to be a little bit casual. And then before we know it, we've not really got agreement with each other because we're actually, like, you know, kind of not quite there yet. It took the followers of Jesus 10 days. We should be comforted. I'm not crit- criticizing any of us here. I'm not, I'm not doing that at all. It's not, this is not about heavy shepherding or anything like, like that sort of thing. But it, and, and let's think about this. The followers of Jesus, it took them 10 days following his ascension to come into this complete covenant of love in the upper room. And then, and then we know what happened because it says what happened. Acts 2 verse 1 and when the day of Pentecost had fully come suddenly there was a sound like the blowing of a violent wind that is where the Lord commands his blessing right I think that that upper room was after the ascension was where the disciples decided to take seriously this covenant of love and they weren't there because they thought they should be there they weren't heavy shepherded by Jesus into the room (laughs) they voluntarily chose to go there to wait on what the Father had promised. Think about the promises we have as a church. I mean, really? We've got so many promises as as a church, and we should really circulate them much more than we do, I think. But so they went in obedience to Jesus into the upper room, and they tarried there. They tarried there. And this was after, remember, they'd been given some measure of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had breathed on them, looked into their eyes, and breathed on them individually, coming close to them and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. The enemy is terrified of our commitment, folks. He's absolutely terrified of our commitment. And if you want to hear something about, and actually this is something that we all should watch. There's a YouTube video that we all should watch. It's by, it's by um, Prayer Storm TV, if you look on their YouTube channel. And it's called something like, The Day I Was Born, I Married a 60-Year-Old Witch. And it's about a guy who was a warlock who then became a Christian. And it's a three-hour thing. But you should all watch it because he tells you, he makes us, 
you know, we look like such a bunch of... Um, the church and the nation looks like we're just so confused. And the enemy's camp is not confused at all. You know, they know exactly what they're doing. You know, strategically taking people down, you know. It's called... Um, the day I was born, I married a 60-year-old witch. And it's a, the guy's name is James, James Koala. Koala. It's something like that. Koalia. Koalia. Yeah, yeah. It's, it came up on my YouTube, and I, and I ignored it. And I was like, I, I ignored it. And, I, and then somebody, somebody WhatsApped it to me and said, Dave, you just have to watch this. So I watched it. And then I, then I said to Bobby, you really have to watch this. And she, she saw me later on in the week, last week, and she was, that marked me, you know, that was... Yeah. Idea. Can you post on WhatsApp? Yeah, we can post it on WhatsApp. Yeah. I'm just saying that I'm halfway through it. Yeah. It's a bit much. It is. It is. It is very much. It's kind of full on. And it's very sad. Um, but it's. But it's also um, really revealing about the enemy. So he basically talks about covenant in this and how the enemy is scared. Yeah, that's the one. How the enemy is scared. Of covenant. Yeah, covenant. And he talks about in that, he talks about these 20 women who were illiterate and one guy, one pastor, who basically <coughs> said they made a covenant to pray together for 90 days, for six hours a day. And they were halfway through the covenant. And these Satanists were like, if this doesn't get stopped, it's going gonna, it's gonna to destroy the works of Satanism for 75 years. Yeah. 90 days, 20 women. Amen. And so his job then gets to undo that covenant as a Satanist. He has to go and undo that covenant. And, it t and he tells you how he does it. It's a crazy, crazy thing. Um, but it's, really, it's, it's a really good thing to listen to, you know, because it's like it takes me from being very casual about covenant to being like, actually, this is a really important thing. I mean, the fact that he was sharing, wasn't it, the bit that I got to was when he was in, in Uganda. Yeah. Because it's Ugandan. He's Ugandan. And... I think he was um, Moesharello that was coming. There were a couple of ministers yeah. that were come to the country. He mentioned Moesharello and, somebody and uh, John, John Melindy. Melindy. And they had to leave, leave the country because they would die if they were to be there whilst these Moesharello. individuals, because they had this anointing wow. that would just destroy them. So they had to leave. There's so much power, isn't there, that we have? And we don't realise we have. Yeah, exactly. That's that. It's it's really really worth worth a listen. I'm not suggesting here that and that any of us are casual and not committed. Please please hear my heart on this. I'm just pointing out some of the enemy's plans so we're aware of them. You know. Another way the enemy makes 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 us um not quite on the page, is, you know, somebody once said that if the enemy can't make us bad, he'll make us busy. Have you heard that? You know, yeah. And you know what, when, I remember in September, Pastor Rod was just here, beginning of September, September the 3rd it was, he was speaking about, you know, I can't remember exactly the, the topic of, of the time, but he was talking about releasing our faith. And uh, I was, I, I quite often take notes on my phone during a sermon, so I was taking notes on my notes app of my, of my phone. And um, I wrote down, he said, we've got to release our faith. And I wrote down, release our faith, and it auto-corrected. And it said, release our diary. Release our diary. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that's such a word for me. You know, release our diary. And this is so important because I was listening to a really fascinating podcast the other 
a few months ago. It was by Steve Long, who was a, who was a senior pastor at Toronto Church, where they had from where the Toronto um, revival came, and Robbie Dawkins, and they were talking about the Toronto blessing and what happened and how it started and what then happened and then what happened and then how John Wimber was in, you know, involved and all these things. But the, the real key thing that stood out to me, which was the most interesting thing to me, there were some really interesting things. He talks about how when the Holy Spirit came that day in power, there was an audible crack in the atmosphere, like big noise, and then the congregation were uniformly on the floor. There weren't that many of them. There was about 100 of them, something like that. And they were uniformly on the floor. And the Holy Spirit moved really, really, really powerfully that night. <coughs> but it's what happens next which is, which is actually the most significant thing. Because there was another church in Toronto, he says, that had the same sort of things going on. You know, the Holy Spirit was moving really, really powerfully in this other church. But you see, what Steve Long says is that where the other congregation after this happened said, see you next week, John Arnott, who, who ran Toronto's vineyard, said, see you tomorrow. You know? And then they met six nights a week for 12 years as the Holy Spirit moved and he moved and he moved and he moved. And I mean, we know the, we know the effect of that, you know? So it's that thing of availability when he, when he comes. You know, if the Holy Spirit comes powerfully... Are we available to him? Yeah. Are we ready as a body to move? Ready when he moves to move? Are we ready for the Lord to challenge our availability remaining in him and our availability to each other? Because the Lord promises to command this blessing as we remain, abide, and dwell together in unity. I mean, who doesn't want to be part of that blessing? Yeah. Who doesn't want to be part, you know? To receive such a blessing that we go from here and see our whole nation and the nations changed, you know, to see our generation and all the generations changed for Jesus. You know, that's what the blessing is. They're commanding the blessing. Jesus is, Jesus is bringing his power to us, you know, because his power and his love are in... You can't divide Jesus' power into one little bag and his love into another. They're together. You, never, you can't divide power and love, you know. It's like if, if, if you've got love but no power, then the love doesn't mean very much because you can't do anything, you know, yeah. with it. If you've got power but no love, then you're a dictatorial maniac, right? So you have to have power and love together. And this is, and this is the blessing that Jesus brings. This is the blessing that Jesus brings. And all we have to do, folks, is we have to remain together in him. And let me just end with Ephesians 4.13 which says, until we all reach oneness in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, growing spiritually to become a mature believer, reaching to the measure of the fullness of Christ, manifesting his spiritual completeness and exercising our spiritual gifts in unity. Amen. Amen. Of course you can share something. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm just going to read out a dream do you want to come on the yeah, mic? Should we just grab, grab the mic? Yeah. Um, yeah, I had a dream this week. Uh, I don't remember what day. Um, it says seventh, but that doesn't make sense because it's this week. Okay. Um, and seventeenth. Yes, 
yes, on the 17th. Um, and so I wrote it down because it, it seemed quite um, important. So I dreamt I was singing worship songs with a circle of children. Then we all experienced God's power and started singing. Then midway through, I realized I couldn't carry this song anymore. And just, just as I was about to stop, one of the, um, uh, the Rouse kids, um, Karen, um, actually started singing. Um, and she carried the song and all the children and myself started to worship and we started to weep. Then one of the youngest children started praying uh, and they were praying about the UN um, and said that it is possible for unity to happen. Um, and they kept on crying and, and praying again. And they were, uh, I felt like they were praying for the Middle East situation. Um, and then, and then, and then I, tr I was trying to interpret what the dream was in the dream. <laughs> um, because the, the main concept was if the nations can be, you know, can be unified, you know, what about us? Um, mm. and, uh, yeah, that was the dream. Should we pray? <laughs> yeah, we can turn off the turn off the recording. <sighs> Let's pray as we see fit. I don't need to be the only person here. Let's just all draw together in prayer. Mm, thank you, Jesus. We believe you've really enjoyed this message. For further information, visit www.commonwealthchurch.org and feel free to join us on any Sunday 